to the Canical Freak Podcast. Uh, I'm joined again today by Ryan Archibald, a professor in history at the uh, at CSU Dominguez Hills, and new friend of the show, Brendan McElmeal, who's a grad student at the University of Washington in history as well. And we're here to finish our conversation about colleges. We went through the Byzantine uh, labor structure of colleges <laughs> last week. And now, if you thought that was uh, both complicated and overly stupid, uh, now we're going to talk about how colleges are funded and how they use that money, uh, which is, woo boy, uh, maybe everybody get your, your spreadsheets and flowcharts ready. Uh, and blood we... pressure medication. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, right? <laughs> But before we get into all that, um, Ryan, we have some contract news update at the beginning of the last episode. You were once again getting ready to vote no on a contract so that you could be on strike. Uh, me and Brendan were once again ready to see you with your uh, acoustic guitar out on the street corner playing some folk music to labor chants. Uh, but once again, you're in your house. That's That has not happened. Uh, so what happened with the CSU contract vote? Okay. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> so the tentative agreement that we talked about last week was put up for a vote. The membership, uh, ratified the tentative agreement. They, uh, voted yes, but at actually pretty, I think interesting numbers. So the yes vote was 76%. And there was a no vote of 24%. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a couple of caveats here. One, that 76% number is quite low for a ratification vote, right? Yes. Um, I mean, to put it in perspective, it's not as low as what the UAW contract was. I mean, the UAW uh, big three was 58%, but that was also because there was a lot of, um, like a huge amount of demands, but also just a lot. They got they got a lot of big wins, but also didn't make some progress. Here, the seventy six percent you normally want to see, or normally do see, a ratification vote in the nineties, right? So I think the mm. Teamsters in our uh, the CSU Teamsters ratified theirs by ninety seven. The staff was also in the nineties, and so having seventy six percent say yes is is very damning for the bar, for the leadership. That number of of yes, probably would be lower if it were a regular reopener. With a regular reopener, meaning that the entire contract is uh, under negotiation, CSU would have been forced to go back to the negotiating table by law. Mm -hmm. Since this was a reopener, there is no legal obligation for the CSU to um, return to the table, right? And so it would require the effort of membership to try to propel, you know, compel them back. Now, I think that that figured into a lot of people's calculation. I know I think a lot of people were very upset about this contract. Um, most people that I spoke with, people, if they were on the fence, it was not, you know, they were not happy yeah. to vote yes. <laughs> um, it's just that it's easier to deal with the devil you know than the devil you don't, mm-hmm. right? And I know that some people were scared to leave money on the table because there is a possibility that, you know, we go on strike. There's the the only other point of leverage at a strike, you know, in academia is generally the start of the semester. 
and the end of the semester. So we would need to really be talking about withholding grades as a real threat. And I don't know if membership is ready to, was ready to do that. Second is that the ballot language language itself was very, very skewed. Uh, the yes part included, you know, yes, we agree to all of the things one. And then the no part said, no, we accept only the uh, um, imposition that uh, CSU has given us and we may return to bargaining. So basically saying, yes, we accept all these things or you vote no, here's the pile of you know crap that the CSU is going to give. Very skewed language. I think a lot of uh, some people were very swayed by that. Well, you know, bargaining for our contract begins in uh, November or October of this of this next year, and we have an assembly as the uh, larger union of all the campuses in April. So it'll be very interesting to see what happens um, at that assembly because that's where all the major decisions are made. I know that there's a movement to um, have direct elections. Uh, for mm-hmm. leadership and for the bargaining team itself, that they are accountable to membership, not through this kind of electoral college system that the union has. And I don't know, it's, you know, stuff is moving so very quickly. I don't know if people will have the language yet to kind of have that resolution and have that passed, but hopefully we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. And that's stuff you got to build from the ground up usually. And yeah, I mean, for people that I, I think, Ryan, you were telling me that the L.A. Times reported 76 percent. Yes, overwhelming, you know, and uh, for people who kind of don't understand when the union recommends a yes vote, uh, it essentially it's supposed to be a done deal at that point. And it, to give an example, at our last contract vote, uh, at which, you know, the the highlights of that contract were a. per year raise for full-time faculty. Now, keep in mind, I think we voted on that contract in 2020, so that was just wiped out immediately. Um, As well as a half a percent raise every three years for associate faculty or adjuncts. Um, As well as uh, the one thing that was a plus in it was uh, there was a what could be read as a commitment from the college to maintaining a certain number, hiring a certain number of full-time faculty every year, although COVID immediately voided that. We have something like 430 faculty in our union for our college, and I was one of a single-digit number of no votes <laughs> on the contract. So again, to give you an idea of like how contract votes tend to go, like, you know, that's that, you know, even when it's not that good a deal. Like, uh, especially amongst faculty, because, you know, even in the CSU system, most faculty are are probably adjuncts and are, you know, in a pretty tough spot, you know. Yeah. And and the CSU, uh, CFA doesn't maintain a strike fund. That's also Mm -hmm. something that's uh, glaringly uh, missing uh, that needs to be built. Um, And, you know, when the leadership says here's the tentative agreement, they basically have made, you know, as somebody pointed out to me. They've said, this is the best we can do, right? And so whether they would be committed or willing to fight for more, right, is kind of people may not buy that, right? So, Well, the struggle continues. Uh, Brendan, good luck this summer. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) thanks. With with the grad student contract. We're actually meeting next week by Zoom. First, where our department organizing committee is meeting together to talk about our demands, but then we're going to... Uh, listen in on the bargaining committee's first meeting with the university. 
And so, yeah, I mean, whereas the last few years have been, you know, kind of presented this new golden age of like union organizing because there were, there was like union wins for once. I mean, something nobody's experienced for like 40 years. So people are perfectly right to be excited about it. Um, you get historian brain where you kind of want to be like, pump the brakes, guys. <laughs> like this ain't 1935. OK, like pump the brakes. Um but in college, it's definitely been contract winter. And part of that is this reason that the colleges give, which is that they have no money, that they're in a money crunch, they're in a perpetual uh, hole when it comes to finances. And I think today, one of the things we want to argue is that like a lot of things in modern America, that's both true and not true. <laughs> simultaneously like there there is a world where if you look at the college's balance sheet they are short of money there's also you know that's the product of how the college has chosen to organize and reorganize itself and uh devote its priorities right and so political choices political choices now to kind of set us up i just wanted to sort of briefly talk a little bit about the 1970s again you guys are historians right you did the, the the modern era for the most part at least took some classes in it right uh we can't talk about the modern world without talking about the 1970s and i strongly recommend that uh people that are interested in this go re back and revisit the ending the myth episode uh 23 where we talk about neoliberalism but um in the early 1970s, there was this giant revanchist movement that we've now come to call neoliberalism to reverse, essentially, the New Deal. And uh, it's something that had been underway literally since the inception of the New Deal, but sort of reached a critical mass in the 1970s due to the profit crunch, uh, the defeat in Vietnam, lots, lots of factors, right? At that time, conservatives especially began writing the you know position papers and things like that about how American capital could save itself from the clutches of collectivism. Uh, there's a very important document that comes out uh, from Lewis Powell uh, at this time. Uh, he's writing for the National Chamber of Commerce. It's a secret document, a secret memo uh, that gets leaked to the public a year later, but secret memo where he talks about, look, uh, we're on the verge of collectivism. He cites specifically polls that show that half of university students favor socialization of basic industries to kind of like get the panic level on high and then suggests ways that American capital can reassert its power in the United States. A lot of it is stuff that you'd be familiar with, like the creation of political action committees and things like that, uh, the you know flooding the zone with money in politics, right? But he also has a special focus on education and on colleges specifically. And we talked a little bit last week how colleges were sort of this, this constant whipping boy in the culture wars. And this is like becomes a real focus of conservative revanchists. And, you know, their basic argument is that opening up the colleges post-war and allowing working class people into it was a mistake. And allowing them in, they were radicalized by Marxist professors. Uh, you know, if you ask them to name the Marxist professors, they would probably 
you know, put their hands in the air or something, you know, just like they do today. Um, but, uh, you know, they just put their hands and they go, uh, all of them, maybe, who knows, right? Anybody who doesn't teach at the business school. Um, but that their uh, version of sort of libertarian or neoliberal capitalism was not the dominant language at college universities. And because of that, the students had become radicals and had ruined America with their degenerate thought. Uh, the most prominent advocate of this was an economist named James Buchanan at the at Virginia Tech at this point, who after spending one year at UCLA and being disgusted by the freaks at UCLA, the, the blue haired girls and the, what, you know, whatever the modern equivalent would be, uh, mainly being discussed at the Angela Davis controversy at UCLA, uh, wrote a, a piece called Academia and Anarchy where he argued that a big part of the revanchist project is going to have to be reforming the university. And in reforming the university, uh, what he meant was business needed a bigger say in how the colleges were run through boards of regents and trustees. Uh, They needed more say in which professors were hired and how they were promoted, that professors needed to have what, you know, libertarians like to call a stake (laughs) in the college, by which he meant, reduced salaries, increased likelihood of firing. He advocated for the complete elimination of tenure, uh, as well as, you know, other weird things like he advocated that professors should have to rent their own offices, should have to pay the college for an office and for a classroom so that they would feel like they have a stake in the college. Uh, He was also a very big advocate for students should have to pay a lot more to go to college. And Buchanan argued this for two reasons. One was he thought a lot less people should go to school. All right, that, that's like reason number one. Uh, you'll not be shocked to find that Buchanan got his start as a major economist advocating against the desegregation of schools in the South. Um, but he also was arguing this saying that, and this is an important point of like libertarian politics, that if students don't pay a premium for the school experience for going to school, they won't value their education in the correct way, right? If education is cheap, then they'll go and they'll treat it as uh, an experience, uh, you know, like an educational experience as opposed to a career building exercise. And so this becomes a really key point. Now, in, you know, at this point in 1970, Ronald Reagan begins advocating for charging higher tuitions at California colleges. His staff start telling in public uh, events, start saying that too many kids are in school uh roger freeman a stanford professor and advisor to reagan tells the press we have to be selective on who we allow to go through higher education if not we'll have a large number of highly trained unemployed people he then perplexingly said that's what happened in germany i saw it happen very strange but okay (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, but there was this idea that there need that the essentially for business to get its control over colleges, they needed to get uh, a lot. They need to get their financial hooks in, right, both through the students and the instructors. Which brings us uh, to the 1975 financial crisis in New York City, when uh, Ford famously told the city when they asked for a loan to drop dead, President Trump wants them to drop dead. One of the demands for a financial bailout of New York City and their financial crisis was that they needed to start charging money in the form initially of various fees, but uh, the demand was tuitions at CUNY, at the City University of New York. So basically, 
the city of New York had made college a promise to its population saying this is a social good that we are promising you like public education. And the bank said, nope, this has to now be put into the form of a commodity that is purchased on the market and rationed by price. And the city did it. And uh, everything, if you are a student and have student loan debt, everything since then is history for you. And now what you're paying back. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so from there, I, I guess I kind of want to talk about this, this idea of the user fee. So I think in libertarian ideology, the politics of the user fee is kind of clear in that they they only believe in the commodity form as like the sole arbiter of human interaction so the idea of paying fees for things to them is like the ultimate good you know it just so happens to also benefit them and their benefactors mysteriously um, coincidence Mere co coincidence co coincidence i'm sure but i wonder uh ryan you were talking about when we were off mic this idea of tuition hikes and how We've constantly said that tuition hikes have to do with, oh, the, the state has pulled money out of the colleges and they've had to replace it with tuition hikes. And you've said that's not exactly true. <laughs> and so I'm curious if you want to expand on that. Yeah, sure. Um, so a lot of this, I would recommend that folks read the work of uh, Christopher Newfield. Um, he's an um, excellent scholar on the place of the university and modern American society. Um, there's a few books that come, uh, their titles are kind of escaping me right now. Um, but he's kind of one of a couple of other scholars that are involved in the field of critical university studies. But they've noted that tuition and fees, really, um, because in most cases, especially with California, it was categorized as fees rather than strictly tuition. No, that those fees increased at the same time that state funding didn't wasn't cut. It was either maintained or it was growing, right? Mm -hmm. And that's through the 80s and the 90s. And it's really, you know, in there is a period of, you know, after the uh, 2000 and after 2008, after the bubble in 2000 and the crisis in 2008, there has been a retreat from public education in terms of state budgeting and federal, and federal bu budgeting. But that is also interestingly related to the place of tuition that universities have have um, or the emphasis on tuition that universities have made um tuition is not attached to any political demand by the state right with when the state allocates money that money needs to go to x program and so with tuition or with fees you have greater flexibility to do whatever you want with that money, right? Mm -hmm. And administrators increasingly imagine themselves as, uh, you know, the CEOs of corporations rather than as stewards of a of a of a um, public institution, right? Providing a public good, and for them, this flexibility allows them to kind of put money into whatever projects they want to do, be it building fancy buildings, be it uh, at LSU. <laughs> at LSU recently, I don't know if people are aware of this, LSU used student an entirely student fee funded um, or made an entirely student fee funded lazy river. Um, meanwhile, <laughs> well, the, meanwhile, the library is crumbling. Mm -hmm. right? um, 
Ryan, yeah, I'd that... like to make a just quick interjection uh, as a point of pride in looking this up. Yes, LSU famously built this lazy river, and I wanted to look this up and like get dates right and stuff. And what I discovered in my research is that my alma mater, Texas Tech University, in fact, built the first lazy river in 2005 after I left coincidence who knows in 2000 shortly after I left in 2005 uh again entirely with student fees and yes I can attest having been there just the year prior uh that money could have been spent elsewhere <laughs> there was a lot of problems with that campus uh that a lazy river let's just say did not solve <laughs> yeah yeah and I mean who knows maybe your life trajectory may have changed it uh, it had that lazy river been built by the time you were a student there maybe you would still be floating away you know listening to jimmy <laughs> buffett um anyway but so the yeah. relationship between tuition and fees and state funding is interesting because as tuition and fees became more and more central to budgets uh you know states and the federal government reacted saying oh well so you you have money you're able to raise revenue we're going to pull back on some revenue and reallocate that to elsewhere. And in response to that, that created this kind of cycle in which uh, it became imperative as kind of, especially during times of economic crisis to kind of raise revenue. Um, but the state also, um, once kind of that crisis point ended, didn't come back with uh, um, re-implementing its same funding level. Uh, it um, increasingly made fu increasing funding contingent on serving more students, on graduating more students, right? And that becomes a problem if your tuition becomes too high, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's this uh, crisis that higher education is facing now, especially that and will be facing in the, in the coming years that since tuition has reached such a high level that one, students are going to be turned off by that because it's just simply unaffordable. And, and if you do the numbers, it, the, the uh, financial rewards for that degree become minimal in the face mm -hmm. of, that, of that debt. And then two, the, the, since those students are not coming, the universities are not going to have the graduation rate expected of the universities, and that will lead to the state following through on threats of removing funding. Yeah, and you know, just to put a kind of point on what you're saying here is that when we talk about sort of this, the reason why historians and a lot of uh, like left economists, uh, the two of them that exist, uh, are interested in the 1970s is that neoliberalism was a reorganization of economic forces that required a reorganization of political thoughts and ideas. And I'm pretty sure I'm the first one to come up with this sort of phrasing and thinking about it. But that reorganization of economic forces and political ideas, this material force in the world, it creates what I like to call contradictions, all right? <laughs> and those contradictions then play out in what, I, what I'm pointing a dialectic all right <laughs> but yeah i mean this is exactly what you're saying right i mean you talk about these like reinforcing you know cycles that go through and this is i i think that the way we look at it today is if as if this is as natural as like the rain or something as opposed to no this is a product of how we've chosen in the very recent era 
to organize colleges and reorganize colleges. So yeah, I mean, tuition, obviously for the student experience, uh, is bad because you got to pay a lot of money and you got to take on a lot of debt. This is something that uh, people have become painfully aware of as they've gotten older. The first generation of floated tuitions has gotten older. But uh, Brendan, it also has another impact for people that are called graduate students. But I think as we talked about uh, last week, are probably better seen as employees of the college. Uh, Although the college, of course, has its reasons for not wanting to necessarily frame it in that way. But uh, yeah, the role of like fees and stuff when it comes to like grad students. What are your thoughts? I mean, I think it's pretty obvious the university largely uses it as leverage that they have over us. Um, As I mentioned before, they're constantly reminding us that, hey, we're forgiving these tens of thousands of dollars of tuition for you. So you should be grateful. Um, There's also fees that are paid every quarter. Like we pay um, an activities fee that pays for the giant new gym on campus. Uh, when we inquired about whether or not we could have this, you know, waived or eliminated last time, they told us, well, it was voted on by the student body. Therefore, it's a binding uh, situation. Uh, when we pushed into that a little bit more, it turns out they did a like phone survey a decade ago. <laughs> and some undergrad said, yeah, we'd like to have a gym on campus that is subsidized. Uh, the and one, that's the bonding democratic um, who answers their phone essentially counsels <laughs> right. the student body. <laughs> the um, least mentally healthy millennial who answers their phone still. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I mean, the best part is, so the last three years, we all continued to pay this fee while um, a large sections of the facility was under reconstruction because they were um, redoing all the locker rooms. So essentially, unless you had some plan to go home and like go to campus work out go home and shower and then go to class like you had to wait and go in the evening when all other thousands of students did so it wasn't very useful um anyway that was a tangent sorry um yeah so we we pay all these fees there's also building fees i don't even remember the whole list there's a whole bunch of fees that we have to pay every quarter that it adds up now to about three three hundred and fifty dollars per quarter Um, It would be a lot more, except that we have over the years negotiated certain fee waivers with the university. And this is one of the ways I think it's a disciplinary tool in that um, these become constant sticking points in negotiations and we can't ask for or, you know, make movement on larger things like cost of living increases because we're fighting over the fee waivers. And they constantly tell us, well, we gave you those, but we're not giving you these other things, right? And they, again, become useful because they reinforce this ambiguous status we have as both employees and students, reminding us constantly, well, you're students, you have to pay these fees, even though the union is saying, well, these are actually fees to work, which you know sound questionably legal. But then mm-hmm. they come back and say, well, you're also students, and that's why you're paying the fees. Yeah. You're paying the fees as students, right? Um, and they uh, become useful, for example, when we uh, were in this situation that Ryan is in and deciding or was recently in and deciding whether or not to accept their contract that gave us almost little, very, very little um, increase in wages. Uh, They explicitly threatened to rescind the fee waivers that were currently um, supporting us. So like essentially reminding us if we continue to strike in the fall, we're going to owe hundreds of extra dollars while we're not actually even working because our fee waivers that are under current contract will disappear, right? Mm-hmm. So it's ex- explicitly being used to discipline labor, right? 
And then we also found out that the, one of the reasons that they are so resistant to rescinding or eliminating some of these fees comes from the fact that their ability to claim that they have this income from these fees is a big part of their credit rating with the institutions they borrow money from to invest elsewhere, particularly in real estate in our university's um, situation. So in the end, the few fees they did move on, they didn't get rid of the fees. What they did was give us a lump sum payment in the fall to pay the fees with so they can still show on paper that these fees are being paid by their <laughs> students slash employees. So they can't get rid of the company store because they borrowed against it, basically. Um, right. Yeah, and I think this gets to a point Ryan was making about this idea of administration seeing itself more as like corporate management. And yeah, in that that episode of Any of the Myth where we talked about neoliberalism, we talked about the, the school, it was called the School of New Managerialism by the Harvard Business School in the 70s. And it was to try and explain how like the psyche of corporate management had changed from like the 60s to the 70s, right? And the like main sort of takeaway quote they had is that this sort of new managerialism emphasized cash management over a commitment to any particular product line. Now they're talking about industry or whatever, but I think this actually fits very well with the education experience as well, right? The sort of management of cash flow for administration becomes an increasingly important aspect of uh, their job. And what they what they personally choose, and I think this is why we got to be clear about choose to see as their job. These are political choices. Nothing here is predestined. Nothing here is natural, right? This is pre choice. Pre uh, these are political choices, right? And I think that the the use of fees at the community college level, we're like really reliant on fees, and it's interesting how the administration sees it as a place to sort of like maximize profit that creates very perverse choices that you might say go against the instincts of an actual learning institution if you're to draw what you think that's supposed to be. And so here's a quote I definitely didn't hear in a meeting from an administrator. So don't don't quote me on that. But this is but I was told by somebody that quote, English 101 is the perfect class because it costs nothing to run. You can overload the instructors and every student has to take it by law. All right. So I mean, in order to graduate, they have to take it. This becomes a priority when fee collection and tuition maximizing becomes your model, right? You know, this all of a sudden becomes a priority. How do we overload 101 classes that, you know, with the lowest cost instructor, the highest amount of students and the lowest amount of overhead, which, by the way, in the current era means do it online, right? As opposed to using college uh campus rooms and resources and the problem is when you talk about education a quality education i think of the average person's mind does not involve four straight years of taking english 101 10 times every quarter but what this has caused at the community college level i can tell you especially where we really are pretty cash strapped what it has caused is the reduction in higher level classes and so we have this thing where if you think about college is like the pyramid going up you have your base survey courses and then you're sort of narrowing knowledge and you know specification skill set as you go up right because that's how like knowledge actually works uh we're just essentially chopping off the entire top half of the pyramid and saying we don't need this because it doesn't generate enough revenue and it does lead to the question then what is the point of the college itself (laughs) 
is it purely a revenue generation uh, machine, right? Or are we are are these kids going there for some sort of reason? And I think that's what's been kind of like uh, dislodged. And I that's from the community college level. I think there's a particularly perverse way that this plays out at the University of Washington at fancier schools, but probably at CSU as well. I'm willing to guess which is the way international students are courted and used. And I was curious if any of you had any thoughts about the now increasing inf- you know, in, uh, emphasis on courting and bringing in international students and what the colleges are actually doing with that. Yeah, so I have some thoughts about this. Uh, I've been for several <laughs> years now often teaching a writing class, which clearly international students seem to be encouraged to take. And for good reason. It's one of the few classes that UW where they will get line-by-line feedback on their writing from an instructor. Uh, we, it's, they're capped at a relatively small amount. So I can understand why there's a lot of them there. Uh, but the, and because of that, and because I actually taught English as a second language for almost 10 years before coming to the program, I've been paying more attention to these issues. Um, they, the university charges these students much higher rates. They are paying out-of-state tuition. And... They, there's a slew of extra courses that can be required of them uh, to get their English to a particular level, of course. And their, you know, their parents are often heavily invested in them going to an American university. So I think they're, it's a little bit more manipulable in that sense as well. Um, but even though the university kind of holds out this ideal of an American education to these people, they don't follow through on the promise by actually supporting them through their program in a consistent and helpful way. There is not actually full English as a second language support. I just went to a meeting a week or two ago where we were talking in the English department with people from the international student like organization on campus. Like they have the, the campus has these institutions that are there to help them. I saw a lot of really cool stuff they're doing, um, but a lot of the issues came down to well, we would love to offer this extra, like there there are extra courses available, but the students have to pay for it, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the, the recognition is like everybody involved in this in the campus on the faculty level and the um, kind of staff level are very aware that if this were just free, the students would do it and they would like to do it. They would love to take an extra English course that would help them actually get academic English uh, the skills that they need to actually succeed in these classes or the extra writing help that they need to succeed in their classes. But they don't have, they only have so much time in their schedule and they only have so much money or their parents or whoever's paying for it or their credit score. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's really frustrating for me because I earlier worked in these programs abroad in the UK, which also has a very problematic relationship to international tuition fees. Um, but they support the students a lot more. So they have a like an intensive orientation course at the beginning, like in the summer before they start their program. And if they're like after they they're deemed to not quite have the the academic English skills yet in the fall, they continue with academic support throughout the year. And like there's nothing quite like that at UW, um, or as far as I understand, any American university that does this. Yeah, it's worth noting, we had talked about last week about the support staff being one of the, like, the groups that gets gutted the hardest at the college. And part of that support staff is the ESL, you know, uh, support for international students. So at the same time, they're courting them and taking in more than ever. They're also cutting any sort of supports they could have. And I think this is also very like emblematic of the 
change in the purpose of the university uh, from the perspective of, I guess, what you might call the American like ruling class or whatever. But during the Cold War, I think it was, you know, we all, the universities also courted international students for not particularly savory reasons. But it was mainly just to, like, turn them into little Eichmanns and then send them back to, like, Latin America, you know, to staff the Pinochet regime, right? <laughs> you know, for instance, right? Which I think we can all agree is not, like, the most positive uh, thing to have done. But now they've sort of converted the courting of international students into just, like, cows to be milked. Right. And, you know, which I think has also really been significant that they've really focused their eye on Asia for this. And like the courting of Chinese students and things like that is like, like I said, literally just like milk cows, you know, like with no intent on really giving them anything in return. And it's uh, I don't know. It's one of those things that's pretty shocking and should be more of a scandal, I think. (laughs) Now. Ryan, you had mentioned sort of off like I think an important point, which is in the never-ending culture war over colleges, there is this depiction of like there's the good university and the bad university, right? The good university is the STEM university, right? Where these kids are learning all the lessons that they're going to need to be the workers of the future and to be productive and all that. But then there's this other like cancerous add-on to the university, which is the liberal arts, right? The humanities. And in the humanities, that's where your kids go to become like blue haired, anti-fa Muslim communists, right? To get converted to that, right? And that there are, everybody at the humanities department is just smoking weed and fucking around all day. And it's it's like this pointless thing, right? Very so, true. It's very true. <laughs> exactly, right? And there's this, I'm not saying it's untrue, but there's <laughs> there is this sort of call, I think a kind of constant call, particularly on the right to sort of gut the humanities. And uh, kind of depressingly, a little bit on the, like, I think, uh, contrarian left as well. But they got the humanities. And you were arguing that the humanities actually serve a slightly different purpose in reality when it comes to how colleges are funded. Yeah. So um, with especially the transition to kind of relying on more flexible revenue streams, it's... It, it also, I, so I guess this also ties back to how the different colleges are funded. So with the humanities, there's very little outside institutional funding for, say, research or um, even teaching. Whereas with the sciences, you have a kind of robust set of institutions, both public and private, um, who offer funding, you know, right away. So one, the it's, it's important to note that while STEM fields receive a great deal of grant money, right? And this, especially at an R1 institution, I, it kind of gets more complicated with the medical schools because medical schools are an entirely different beast mm-hmm. um, in terms of what their place in the university. We'll need another decade to talk about the like fucked up interaction between our horrifying medical system and our horrifying college system. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very complex web and depressing as mm-hmm. usually everything is. Um, but uh, STEM fields, while they take in a great deal of grant money, they actually cost more to mm-hmm. run because what those grants don't uh, are what's not built in largely are the costs to run those labs or the the um, you know the the root costs of trying to stand up those various programs. And in fact, I think it was a 
there was some research conducted in 2010. So this is definitely aged, but um, the UC system was annually leaving, you know, having a shortfall of $300 million from STEM, from STEM grants, because these grants, especially at the federal level, um, did not have uh, enough funding to stand up the programs. The other, so the humanities kind of subsidize this Mm -hmm. because uh, their role in the university is to serve students. They're providing a great deal of the instructional hours and the service hours at the university, meaning shared governance, serving on uh, committees, et cetera. So it's this inverse relationship than what, you know, is commonly thought um, that the STEM fields actually produce revenue. Now, the one area that reason for the focus on STEM, especially for university administrators, has to deal with intellectual property and how they can, how if they can patent research conducted at the university and how they can profit from that uh, patenting. And since I believe the early 1980s, if not 1980 itself, changes in patent law have really guided administrators to focus on that aspect of revenue generation. Yeah, so we'd we'd hinted last week that maybe uh, by beginning from the idea that colleges are meant to educate the student body, that we've actually failed to understand the college, right? We failed to understand what administrators at least think the project of a college is. And I, I think you get to a good point, right? Because as state funding left the college system, right? State and federal funding, right? Left the college system. There was a flood in of grants, private industry funding, et cetera, right? Now, that has kind of affected what the role of a college would be, just like any private, you know, pub, public-private partnership does, because the private industry is not particularly interested in creating in creating an educational environment. They are interested in returns, right? You know, yeah, they're not not interested returns. in knowledge for knowledge's sake. Yeah, and so it has created this weird uh, bifurcation of both the college system as a whole between, as you said, R one institutions. And then everybody else, which is why community colleges essentially received no money in funding. But it's also bifurcated the very R1 campuses themselves, right? (laughs) Split them in half, right? Uh, Causing fights between various departments. Uh, Because, yeah, if you're talking about a contract negotiation between faculty at, say, the University of Washington, science grad students or science faculty members who are on grants and things like that from a private company or from a foundation or whatever have a lot less interest in, say, what the union fight is than, say, humanities department (laughs) faculty who are relying on their classes, right, for funding, right? Um, You know, so it creates this, this sort of natural, like, splitting point of labor. Strange. Oh, yeah, I was just saying, going off of that, can, like, also... Going back to your point about the the way the medical system is uh, entangled in this, the faculty at UW are, um, you know, the professors in humanities and sciences and the medical faculty who are also doctors. So they have very different like interests and relationships to the University of Washington structure. And this is one of the major reasons that like there isn't a faculty union right now because they can't get all these people to agree or even to like bargain together because their like interests are very different 
another point to this too is that with and you know we've talked about kind of the the prioritization of stem and how in reality that costs more for a university to run but in public they don't really present that one of the justifications for the reduction of funding from the humanities and from the social sciences has been at least for administrators is the declining number of majors right Mm -hmm. so funding allocation is often determined based off of or in this is deals with employment as well when there are when there's money available to have um, new tenure streams who gets those positions is determined by service and number of number of um, majors now it's true there has been a declining number of humanities and social science degrees in part because of changes in the larger culture, the idea of STEM education, right, being the only way of social mobility. The uh, And this is something, what we're talking about in affecting colleges has impacted every single le- le- layer of education in the United States. But while that funding is declining, it's actually generating more and more revenue because of its teaching. It, if you look at the amount of teaching hours that, it, that the humanities provides, it provides uh, a bulk of the number mm-hmm. of teaching hours in the number of service hours. Mm-hmm. Um, but the metrics for how budget that is, how money gets allocated does not reflect actually the, their role at the university. Yeah. And, I, and, you know, in that conversation where I was told that the English 101 was the perfect class, the context of that conversation was the administrator telling us at the trade school, we're going to shut you guys down right? Because you cost too much. And now this might seem shocking because, you know, if you follow the college culture war debates and things like that, the whole story has all been like, oh, well, you know, and this is always coded towards working class kids. Uh, Instead of going to college, you should just go to trade school or whatever. As if people, you know, you can always tell these are like college educated nerds or whatever from like four-year colleges say this because what do they think trade schools are like do they think that's like a, a warehouse somewhere right? like what do they think that is but but the the reality is you know as uh i guess we decide that we're going to have a cold war with china or maybe a real war with china so we're gonna have to actually learn how to make things again or this is the real secret as uh, the shipping lines and stuff like that broke down during COVID and we realized we got to bring some of that industry back because it's no longer profitable to actually transport it internationally. The actual reason for the rise of manufacturing over the last several years. But anyways, as we've decided that we need to do some of that and we need to actually build the trades back up, you know, there's been a sort of rhetorical emphasis on the trades, but the actual structure of the college system where the trade schools actually are, where they actually functionally are, the structure of the college itself is still exactly in opposition to that and does not want to run them because trade classes are fucking expensive to run. You know, an English class only requires an instructor who, you know, let's be honest, of professors are the lowest paid you know, and you can squeeze them the hardest. Whereas a trades class, it's hard to get instructors. They have to pay us a premium and we have to have equipment and the equipment costs money. Right. And so the college is not interested in actually running those. And I think, again, this just gets to the sort of points of like the contradictions between sort of rhetoric and reality, right. uh, That we see in in these schools. Now I want to point to maybe another sort of crisis that got a lot of um, sort of play or whatever, uh, which 
is the idea of like the replication crisis and all this kind of stuff. This is like within STEM mainly has been a, uh, a big deal for about the last decade. And again, it's sort of played off rhetorically as, well, this is just because colleges are these public institutions. Again, you've gotten this far in the episode, LOL on that. But these public institutions where people are just allowed to do whatever they want and they don't have the iron hand of business behind them to force them to, to play it straight or whatever. So everybody's just fucking around out there. And that's created the replication crisis. But this is a crisis that's actually a product of the neoliberal era and the reorganization of colleges. But yeah, it's the product of like this sort of neoliberal turn in colleges, in the sense that industry demands this sort of groundbreaking or novel research, right? And it demands a consistency of groundbreaking research. There, as we talked about earlier for industry, they demand a return on investment. And there's no return on investment in repeating studies, right? There's no return on investment in replication, right? The return on investment is... Can you give me something that I can flash in front of angel investors and trick them into giving me a shit ton of money? Like, that's the ROI, the real ROI, right? Is bullshit, you know, the production of bullshit. And because the STEM fields in particular are increasingly funded and driven by these industries that peddle exclusively in bullshit, shockingly, they're now completely filled with shit, you know, like, and. It's one of these things that I, I think I just want to sort of continually just cut through the culture war stuff here, the, the rhetoric versus the reality, right? The problem with the higher education system is neoliberalism. It's not your liberal professors. It's not communism. It's not blue hairs. It's not hippies. It's not whatever. It is the neoliberal reorganization. The, the problem with higher education is the problem with every other thing in your life. <laughs> it's the exact same. Go ahead, Brandon. <laughs> I will just point out that like this is probably more acute in STEM, but is also an issue in humanities. Like we mm-hmm. also rely on a lot of grant funding for research, and we have to like in my field of Russian studies, many of those grants come with you need to explain precisely how your research will, um, you know, revolutionize American foreign policy or like help inform American foreign policy or support American national interests, which speaks to partic- larger imperial politics of what's going on here, but also like just generates a lot of bullshit. Like Mm -hmm. I have to explain why my interest in gender and sexuality in the Soviet seventies is like important to us national interests. And I do it. I've written pages (laughs) on this Um, and, and it's necessary. Um, But it also like helps, you know, streamline how some of this research takes place. I'd streamline. I'm pigeon pigeonhole is the word I was looking for. And for the humanities, like as, as it has increasingly relied on grants for funding research, um, those, that, those grants are disappearing, right? Because Ford found, uh, the Ford foundation is no longer, um, uh, offering its, um, its fellowships for completing dissertations. The ACLS has ended, um, the Mellon, um, funded grants for completing dissertations. Um, so, uh, there's been a huge collapse in, in the NEH, the National uh, you know, Endowment for the Arts and Humanities, uh, that is uh, completely been uh, uh, wiped out. Uh, so there's fewer and fewer pots of money available to the humanities, and that's also part of the squeeze on yeah. the and, and it, as it becomes, and it makes it even harder to justify the field, right? Mm-hmm. As because one of the other 
ways that administrators uh, assess the value of, of a department in the institution is how it can access outside streams of money. Um, and as that gets narrowed and narrowed, you know, administrators definitely are keenly aware of that. Yeah, dark days when not even the CIA will funnel a grad student money through a rat line called the Ford Foundation. No, I'm sure. <laughs> but not really. Um, <laughs> I did have a I had a poli sci professor who uh, did modern Russia, and when I asked him about grad school one time, having known nothing about it, he goes, "Oh, he's like, no, you don't pay for grad student. Just do like Russia or something, and let the CIA pay for it." <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so. We, we talked about last week, and I think we got to the point here about, like, you know, the sort of cutting of faculty and, like, what the focus is there, sort of the maximization of profit and things like that. But there is one part of the college, uh, you know, uh, system that has grown, right, which is the administration. And, yeah, what, what's happened to administration over the last uh, 40 years at college campuses? I didn't know that you needed an associate provost to the associate provost of the vice provost <laughs> for ultimate frisbee, right? Like it, it, the administration as as tenure lines have been decimated. Um, in this, I, I, the CSU system. The decimation of tenure lines is something that impacts not just the humanities and social sciences, but all the STEM fields as well. Um, mm-hmm. Like math, increasingly, math is one of those disciplines that has increasingly come under attack, especially by individuals who want to essentially eliminate all of kind of lower division math and replace it with online education. And but the number, so as those numbers have gone down. Uh, admin, it's administrator positions has ballooned like crazy. And whereas, you know, in the past, many people in the, in a university administration would have a connection to the teaching mission of the institution, right? That would be where they, uh, you know, they were formerly a professor at that, at that institution and then joined the administration as a dean and then kind of rose the ranks that way. Many, most administrators have never spent time in a classroom, mm-hmm. right? Um, most of them are trained as running the university as a business, right? And you can get graduate degrees in higher education administration, right? <laughs> um, which I imagine do not center uh education as a primary <laughs> purpose of the university um so the just a complete inverse right and at, and part of that is due to the growing the changing nature of the university to one of uh you know profit making mm-hmm. is that you need more people to manage assets yeah. Right. And um, gener- and to also generate revenue. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about is particularly at larger schools, um, you know, the schools have endowments and things like that, that they manage. And uh, part of the change, the part of the practical reason for the change in administration has been that increasingly running a school is a lot more like running a hedge fund or something like that. Right. You have these staffs of financial advisors, real estate advisors, things like that, 
that are now core to the institution because the state is no longer funding you. Um, you know, costs go up, but tuitions can't fund it, right? So they're they're relying on you know endowment management, real estate investment, all this kind of stuff, right? And that's a whole strata amongst the administration of new employees, right? They have to be paid specialized workers too. I mean, you know, uh, the guy, you know, the guy, the large team that is managing the Harvard endowment are not chumps. These are not like guys getting paid $20 an hour to sit in a room and look at spreadsheets. I mean, these are probably people at wall street experience and getting paid, you know, money that can compensate them to get off of wall street. Right. And, uh, you know, the administrator, you know, at the top of the college, the at the top of the college is now in charge of that, <laughs> you know, and they have to decide what's more important, the college, the, t- the teachers and the humanities, the faculty of the humanities, or the uh, investment department that they got running, the, the Gordon Gecko down in the investment department. You know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, that that's a practical problem, right? Oh, I was just going to say that, you know, it's the... Uh, investments, but it's also managing the brand of the university, right? And I think that's something that we've touched on, but managing the brand of the university has become a really important role for administrators with the prioritization of kind of building projects, you know, capital intense projects of enhancing student experience um, as a way to kind of make, grow a donation base, grow a donor base uh, from alumni um, to attract out-of-state students. It's something we haven't really talked about, but colleges have now become, you know, are now competing for out-of-state stu- students in order for them to pay higher tuition, higher fees. Um, and then the international, the internationalization of American universities, where they are now, it used to be uh, private institutions, but there are some public institutions, I believe, that are starting to think about or actually in the uh, process of constructing campuses abroad, mm-hmm. um, right, as a way of expanding their reach um, and, you know, generating, uh, you know, enhancing that brand. Reaching for markets abroad as markets at home get juiced. Uh, man, hmm. only somebody wrote a book about that. So, <laughs> yeah, and, and part of that brand management, I mean, some of the more, I think, like, scandalous page six uh, college stories you get in, say, the New York Times uh, are really stories about brand management, which is, yeah, the lazy rivers and things like that that people like to make fun of are branding issues for the college, right? Like, they're doing that to create the this is the middle-class p- playground, right, to attract the students that they want to attract, right? Uh, you know, the sons of car dealership owners and whatnot, right? Uh, the extravagant expenses paid for football programs, which are always elements, uh, you know, of criticism and things like that, uh, particularly among a certain set. But colleges are pretty open to saying that this is about branding, right? What is the Alabama brand other than football <laughs> no right and they'll tell you to track students I, who knows right <laughs> like all advertising and pr who fucking knows right all bullshit in the end but but yeah i, I kind of want to talk a little bit about the the politics too of these administration shifts as well um and this goes back to the, what lewis powell was saying about the colleges and about how 
American business needed to essentially reassert their power on colleges. And guys, right before we came on, I looked up the Texas Tech Board of Regents. All right. And uh, there are nine members on the Board of Regents. And I'm going to break this down. Now, for everybody who does not know, the Board of Regents is like the corporate board of a college, right? They'll decide who to hire for president of the college, right? The They're the one that the president then has to mollify for the rest of their tenure, right? you know, go to and uh, explain every decision they make to all that kind of stuff, right? Uh, they are, I think today, and I think this is very different than in the past, but they are today kind of seen as like the representative of the shareholders, i.e. the public, um, you know, at the college, right? But unaccountable to the public. That's yes, the important. 100% fully unaccountable to the public. And also, I think you're going to find out not representative of the public either. Uh, so the Texas Tech Board of Regents has nine members. Six have business degrees or graduates of a business school, usually Texas Tech. One has a law degree, one has a physics degree, and one at the very bottom of the page, and I'm just going to assume this page is organized hierarchically since the chair and vice chair are one and two at the top, but the person at the very bottom of the page with the absolute smallest biography has an education degree. And even she, uh, they're all president and CEO of something, right? Usually oil and gas interests. Um, That seems to be pretty much down across the board because Texas Tech is in West Texas. Um, and the one with the education degree, uh, she's actually not really doing anything with it. She's the president and CEO of the Pretty Foundation, which is just a tax haven for an oil and gas magnate that was created in the 60s. <laughs> so, so the people who essentially run the college in a very serious way, where the buck stops or whatever, rarely have anything to do with education or experience in it or anything like that. And to give you an idea, part of the reason why I thought the Texas Tech one would be funny is that you can kind of look at a board of regents and kind of tell who like the local regional like ruling classes in like a weird way. Um, but the Texas Tech one also gives like very long biographies, which they don't always do. The, the UW one's very short. Uh, but here's some some descriptions. So this is for Dusty Womble, a member of the Texas Tech Board of Regents. Real name, Dusty Womble. Uh, he is a tech CEO. And it says of him, while on the leadership team at Tyler Industries, that's the tech company is for, the company grew to a market cap of $9 billion. Great. Put him in charge of an educational institution. All right. Here's the here's the qualifications for Arcelia Acosta, another member of the Board of Regents, another CEO of whatever. She is a celebrated 30-year business veteran, entrepreneur, nationally recognized speaker, philanthropist, and mother. Great. Put her in charge of a major research institution. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like this down the board, right? And we, in one hand, you look at this and you laugh. But on the other hand, what's actually happened here is a political coup, right? This is a political, uh, a realignment of politics at the college, <laughs> right? Through the Board of Regents. Um, and it affects you know, what kind of president is going to get hired or what kind of chancellor or whatever the college wants to call the CEO of the college, right? What kind of person gets hired, right? And it affects who they're going to hire afterwards. The Board of Regents or Board of Trustees, again, whatever your system decides to call, it, also has a lot of say in things like tenure, 
they have a lot of say and say if a professor gets in trouble PR wise, uh, they'll be the final voice that essentially decides in reality, whether or not the professor gets sanctioned or worse. Uh, but yeah, it's a reorganization that is as much like is with everything with neoliberalism is as much practical as it is political, right. Or political as it is practical, however you want to, whatever order you want to put those in. <laughs> There is one last thing that uh, I kind of want to talk about when we talk about uh, endowments real quick, which is real estate schemes. This wouldn't be America, and this wouldn't be the modern era, if colleges weren't thoroughly invested in real estate schemes. And uh, I was just curious if anybody had any like interesting real estate scam stories or <laughs> any thoughts on this. Well, I mean, just maybe a detail, but... The UC system, at least in California, has uh, been touted as the state's largest uh, landlord, uh, given its number of Very students cool. and, that live in, <laughs> um, you know, uh, university-owned housing. Um, in part, that's you know connected also to the housing crisis in California, but that's also fueled by the university as well, uh, given that. You know, as university campuses grow and, and get in, in, uh, expand to different places, they become attractive to investors who drive up rents and prices of real estate in the region. Um, but that's 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 a trend that's been happening since the 1970s, especially mm -hmm. since um, like places like Wayne State, um, the University of Chicago uh, have expanded into downtown areas that. Uh, previously had been abandoned by capital, um, but then kind of reinvigorated. And these are largely primarily uh, black and brown working class neighborhoods um, that then get displaced. Um, but the UC system also uh, just put in, I believe, $2 billion of its endowment or its, its um, uh, reserves into BlackRock. And basically, um, uh, not didn't bail out a portion of of BlackRock, but it. Um, I'm not quite sure what the details were there, but it has a very uh, infamous relationship now with that with BlackRock. Yeah, and I know like UC Berkeley has had a uh, let's just say infamous relationship with its neighbors. Um, and not in the way that maybe people are thinking of uh, people complaining about protesters or whatever, but in its own uh, predatory uh, land management practices. And I think the the one that's sort of most notorious for this is Col you know, Columbia University and its presence in Harlem, right? And uh, Columbia was used as sort of a main focal point for efforts to gentrify ha Harlem in the uh, 1970s and 1980s. Uh, much to the neighborhood's uh, discontent, I think you could say. Um, yeah, similarly, UW is one of the largest landowners in Seattle and largest landowners in the city. Yeah, I think people would be pretty surprised, actually, to kind of learn what local colleges own, <laughs> you know, uh, which is all magnified by the fact that they're uh, considered like tax-exempt institutions in most cases and in most states. Uh, Yale, again, a private college, but is kind of famous for its uh, very uh, parasitic relationship on New Haven, Connecticut, which is actually a very poor town, which you would not know given Yale's reputation. But part of the poverty in the town, part of the reason for it is that Yale absorbs all the resources of the town and gives literally nothing back. <laughs> you know, uh, shocker, 
right? But, uh, you know, this is sort of the predatory relationship that colleges can have with their communities, all of which is magnified by this increased focus on real estate ownership and speculation. Um, you know, just one other side note, I mean, part of this new managerial style that we've been talking about, the new managerialism, just like in modern corporations, the the tenure of CEOs has been cut dramatically from the 60s to today, right? In the 60s, like average CEO tenure was like 12 or 15 years, and now it's down to like two, you know. Uh, it, universities, the tenure of administrators has reduced dramatically, and it's not like they're constantly being fired or something. It's just that, you know, they've adopted this mindset of jumping from university to university, right? It's considered a stepping stone as, a, as opposed to like an end place, you know? And because of that, there is a desire to put your name on projects, right? And so you also get this rather perverse uh, incentive in colleges where there's claims that there's no money for the library, there's no money for classrooms, there's no money to help students out with tuition, but there's always money to build a random new building that isn't needed. <laughs> yeah, right. Or that that can't be used for instruction. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Um, you'll not be shocked to learn, uh, you know, my college is in one of these exact predicaments where we are paying for multiple new constructions from a previous uh, president who used that to get herself another job at a, a at another college at a higher pay rate. And now we're stuck with the bill. Um, shocking to learn that our uh head of our board of trustees now it's very funny because it's community college like the head of the board of trustees is like the guy who owns a mcdonald's down the road no but our guy's a real estate agent so you know what, what a shocker weird how these all, all these interests just miraculously managed to come together in this way um but yeah like the burnishing of resumes through uh building construction is just one of the more grotesque elements of uh sort of the modern college experience and just to circle back what we, you know, we initially started this conversation with employment and then tuition, um, the, you know, purpose of, you know, raising or the threat of raising tuition is not, doesn't only have a disciplinary Im impact on the students, but it's also for creditors, right? The mm -hmm. creditors uh, and credit rating agencies really look at um, to what degree can you uh, use tuition as a, as a, as collateral, uh, for the, uh, uh bonds that inst these institutions issue, um, in order to, you know, for these capital, capital intensive projects, the various buildings that no that somehow are always occupied, but nobody can knows by whom, mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, adjuncts also are a part of this. This adjunctification is also a part of this, where having a flexible labor force that is lower paid, easily um, uh, um, replaceable, um, also burnishes credit rating. Yeah, I mean, you know, when we, when we talk about like the modern corporate culture, the sort of layoff culture of the modern era, like a lot of that really is imposed from above by financiers and things like that by by finance right now that's not to say that the heads of these companies like uh, gm or whatever like give a shit about their workforce right but it's to say that material conditions right and the reshaping of the economy in the face of a declining rate of profit in production they they, they create these forces right 
So I kind of wanted to end on one last question. That's really two questions, I think, which is, I don't know to what degree you guys have been exposed to this or not, uh, but in certain corners of the online left, the podcast left, whatever, right? I think people who kind of see themselves as a bit contrarian or whatever, there has been this kind of, I don't know, endorsing of the just get rid of college argument from the right, but like, but we're going to do it like leftly or whatever, right? You know, that college is bullshit. We should just get rid of it anyways. Good, good riddance, like let it collapse. And I guess this is sort of like a two-part question, which is obviously we're invested in it. We fucking work there. We'd spend a lot of time there, right? We're invested in it. Um, so, you know, I, I, I guess we, ha- we're, we have our, uh, this is our declaration of vested interest here. But I do think college is worth saving. I, I think it, I think it's being rather blithe. And I think also, um, I think tempting the right and saying you should just get rid of it is one of those things of like, be careful what you wish for kind of things. It's kind of like saying that about public education, which uh, contrarians used to like to say as well. And I'm like, well, they're doing it. So, you know, <laughs> I hope you're going to enjoy that when that happens. Um, but I guess my first question is, what do you think? And I mean, I'm not saying like, what do you think the like uh, value of college is to um, the American system or like why they create it? Like, what do you think the value of college is? And like, why do you think it's worth saving? I guess like make make an argument for preserving this institution that we've now spent over two hours talking about how fucking rotten and like uh, heading towards the grave. It, it, you know, what what's the purpose of maybe saving it from its fate? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I still think there is, you know, regardless of what the, you know, priorities of the administration are and everything, I think that what a lot of students continue to bring to the institution is the desire to engage in critical thought and to learn new things they didn't know before, and to be a part of a community, even for a period of two to four years, where they have the opportunity to kind of explore their curiosities and to learn new things not just for a job, although that's very much a part of what they're thinking, but also just like how to be in the world, how to make your mind a more interesting place to live. And I think that that part is worth saving. And that part like is also if we are going to continue an attempt at a democratic polity uh, necessary for making people like able to engage in politics. Curious. You think anybody wants democracy? All right, Ryan, what do you got? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> do you have any thoughts on this red i mean yeah what to follow up on brendan i agree with brendan's points there but i would also just like to ask a rhetorical question to those who are in the abolish the university crowd is what other institution exists where you can have this type of experience um, mm-hmm. or at least the idea of this type of experience. Nothing exists in the United States separate from the university that will fund or and support research and education. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, we're, we're far away from the kind of various, you know, smaller scale institution, community institutions um, that may have, may have preceded this, but there's nothing that can replace it. Um, and I think just in that sense, it, it is something we're saving for and transforming rather than just getting rid of. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and again, for all the ex- reasons that Brendan, you know, eloquently stated that I think it is 
one of the few times, you know, one of the few spaces that we have where you also are not, you students especially can really decide, right? They have power of autonomy and and decision-making power of what to learn, of how they're going to learn, right? Of how they're going to be in the world. And I think that that space for fostering that autonomy, but also critical thinking and in, in, in critical uh, relationships to uh, you know social institutions is really important. Yeah, and I think the uh, kind of piggybacking on that point a little bit, I, I, I think it's been a constant sort of argument, usually from the right under neoliberalism of, oh, this institution is imperfect, therefore we should get rid of it as opposed to an older argument of this institution's imperfect, how can we expand it, right? How can we improve it? And that argument has always been cynical from the right because the idea is they never cared about the institution to begin with, which is why they want to get rid of it, right? And, uh, you know, I think you're exactly right, right? What would replace it? And the answer, of course, is nothing, you know? And I think this idea of like, oh, get rid of college because it's just where like little fancy lads go to uh, like fuck off for four years, but the reality is, is that college actually does serve a lot of working class students, particularly at the lower levels of the college system. And if you get rid of it, just like if you get rid of public school, it's not like they're going to get an alternative. They will just get nothing. Just like everything else in America, they will just be cut off. And I, you know, uh, the rich, fancy lads that everybody hates will still go to college, baby. They'll still get their private schools all the way through. And uh, nothing will change for them. It'll just be the working class that gets cut off. And I think that's uh, not a future that a lot of people are actually going to want once they get it. Now, I think we're heading towards it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> almost inextricably, but I think we're all going to find it's not going to be particularly pleasant. Um, on a more practical sense, uh, speaking from like the trade side, uh, there are, believe it or not, technical skill sets that people actually have to learn, right, for a society to function. And those technical skill sets have, they were traditionally taught by unions and guilds. We've gotten rid of that in America. We're not, it's, and there's no sign of it coming back. I mean, I, it's been great the last couple of years, but it, it's, you know, we got to be serious, you know. Um, <laughs> America's still a very anti-union country with extremely low union density. Uh, so the unions used to do that. They don't do it anymore. Uh, it used to, you know, the idea was once the unions were crushed, that corporations would take that over. The private sector would take it over. They will, they did not, and they will not, and they never will. That is a sunk cost they expect the public to pay for, right? Well, that's that's for higher level jobs as well. That's mm-hmm. what, you know, Yeah. Why have why have such an interest in kind of chemistry and and the stem fields is that is job training that you're expected to do that you otherwise would have been taught in as you know in the 1970s early 1980s yeah the the the, uh private sector will not replace computer science departments on college campus i'm sorry you can you can say whatever you want about coding camps it's just not gonna fucking happen that's not that's not reality that's living in the fucking clouds and again when we talk about the trades when everybody wants to get real smart about it and be like oh fuck college do the trades again the only trades instruction in america is in colleges i hate to tell you guys this like it's all at community colleges uh it's all desperately underfunded for as much as everybody likes to talk about it from republicans to joe biden i know that's not a very wide 
political gap there. But <laughs> as much as they like to talk about it, not one of them is funding it. Uh, and in fact, the funds are usually cut. But part of the trades crisis that we have, which is very real in America, is that we haven't trained tradesmen for decades. And that's because we crushed the union movement and never created a new pipeline into name a trade, the building trades, machining, whatever, right? We've never created a new pipeline. And right now, literally colleges are it. That's all we got. And uh, it's uh, for working class students, especially, I can tell you from my students, um, them coming to the community college and getting a basic enough starting skill set to put the right, at least the right words down on a resume and say the right things to get a job at, say, a machine shop usually represents a significant improvement in their living situation and their family's living situation. And um, I, I just think it's a little cynical to just jokingly be like, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> Let it burn. <laughs> you know, kind of like public education, same thing, but. Yeah, I'm sorry you had a bad time in college. Guys. I mean, I, I treat this, <laughs> I treat this argument about like just throwing higher education out, quote from the left, the same way I do when people are like, "Oh, look at you criticizing capitalism on your iPhone." Yeah. Har har har. <laughs> it's like the point. The point is iPhones for everyone, not throwing everything away. Yeah, and I and I do think the idea of like having a idea that a human's life should be more about being more than just being fi a finely tuned cog in an industrial machine, right. And whatever your work machine is, that should be about the exploration of deeper topics in life that don't just have to do with your boss's, you know, uh, seizing of surplus value is something that on the left, we should be pushing for. We should, we shouldn't be saying no college for anybody. We should say, nah, fuck it. All your life, you should be able to just say, screw it, I want to take classes for two years on whatever, you know? Yeah, like, absolutely. Who cares if it doesn't make money? <laughs> I mean, what has yeah. caring about making money gotten us at this point, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Well, thank you once again for coming on. And look, I know talking about college finances isn't anybody's idea of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> but thanks for volunteering uh a little bit of your afternoon here so before we go uh anybody got a hey you know what i got two academics right here let's let's uh i'll give you a couple of seconds but let's, let's good book recommendation on the way out we'll end on a positive note we'll throw out a book recommendation for everybody it could be old can be new uh tell our listeners what they need to read uh let's say uh a good classic, uh, Mike Davis's uh, Prisoners of the American Dream. E oh, you know, look, listeners, I was in Long Beach, California, hanging out with my good friend Ryan Archibald on a stoop when he informed me of Mike Davis's uh, condition that he was going to pass away. And what a crushing moment uh, for, I think, leftists who you know came through history or whatever i mean uh, uh, a huge leading light on the american left and yeah prisoners of the american dream an amazing book and uh honestly anything mike davis wrote is uh fantastic and uh you know just like we don't mint trades people anymore we just don't mint people like that anymore and so you know mike davis mike parenti howard zen you know, it's it's getting rough out there. Chomsky's, you know, he's got that last leg left, basically. There's, Rob, Robin, Ke there's there. Robin, Ke Robin, Robin Kelly, Kelly is still, 
so younger, but he's, yeah. you know, he's you know, <laughs> yeah, middle Robbie, age now. Robbie Kell is still out there working it. All right, Brendan, what you got? I got Russia Without Putin by Tony Wood. It is a very accessible, pretty short introduction to how Russia got the way it is. And shockingly, <laughs> it's not just all Putin's personality. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it wasn't a single man who controlled every lever of a massive uh, modern state. Crazy. He obviously no. he didn't have the Stalin machine that has every person a button with everybody's name on it. And you just press it and they do what you do. Right. You, you do what you want. Right. So uh, too bad for Putin. Hopefully he digs that up someday. All right. I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to go with a book that I just got. I haven't read it yet. I'm very excited. I got to finish writing ending the myth fucking script so I can actually read it. But uh, this is a new book by Gerald Horn. And by new book, I mean, it came out last year. So he's written 17 books since then. <laughs> Um, little joke for the horn heads out there. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> this one caught my eye because it's called The Counter-Revolution of 1836. And having grown up in the Texas school system, I immediately knew my man's written a book about Texas, baby. Uh, Texas slavery and Jim Crow and the roots of U.S. fascism. Uh, the It's published by international publishers, and they're very into doing, like, clip art uh, covers now. I encourage everybody to go look at the clip art cover. It's very funny. But uh, I'm excited to read Gerald Horn's History of Texas. Uh, Cannot wait. Uh, Gonna throw that out. I'm giving it a preemptive two thumbs up. All right, everybody. Thanks for coming on, guys. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us again. 